Well, lovely, lovely to hear all the chat and conversation in the building as well. Hopefully, we'll be able to carry those on after the service. Let me add my uh, welcome to those of you who are watching on the live stream as well. We're about to turn to God's Word uh, again in, in a moment. We're going back into our series in Genesis, but we're backing up uh, to chapter 38. And this week, um, we're going to be zooming in, not on Joseph, but on one of his brothers, uh, Judah. And we'll get there in a moment. If you've got a Bible nearby, be a good time uh, to grab hold of that. I thought it'd be helpful just to give a little bit of a, a, a context uh, to it. Um, it's good to know that in Judah's day, the, the cultural, expectations, uh, cultural expectations of the time were, uh, well, a family continuing was really important, and a family name continuing uh, was really important. So if a man dies, and he left a widow but no heir, the kind of expectation or requirement was that his brother would marry uh, his widow, and any children born there would be counted towards uh, his dead brother's family. So the family name continued. Culture's a strange thing, isn't it? Think about that, those kind of expectations, those of you who have siblings, and the way that would kind of work out uh, as well. But that's the kind of cultural expectation in the day. As we, the chapter we're coming into, what's happened is that Judah, one of Joseph's brothers, got married, and he's had some sons. Uh, he had a wicked son called Er. And we're not told exactly why, but God put him to death because of his wickedness. And his widow was a young woman called Tamar. And she was married to his brother Onan. And Onan decided he wanted to do, he didn't want to have children on behalf of his brother. So he did all that he could to avoid that. And God viewed that as a wicked thing as well. And Onan was also put to death by the Lord. Quite dark a passage we're coming into. Judah has another son called Shelah. One more son, two have died, and he has this son, Shelah. What's he going to do? And that's where we're going to pick up the reading this morning in verse 11 of chapter 38. And Amanda is going to come and read God's Word for us. So our reading is from Genesis 38, starting at verse 11 through to verse 30, page 42 of the Red Bibles. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the son of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the, the Adulamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll, I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? 
your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road at Enam? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, This is how you've broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was called Zerah. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, Amanda, for reading those words. Uh, Friends, there's some parts of the Bible when you read them, uh, the more you think about them, the the worse uh, they sound as you dwell on them. A young woman and her older father-in-law, the death of children, and then burning to death. Um, let, me, let me lead us in a prayer as we uh, come to look at these uh, words together. Almighty God, um, everything that's in the Scriptures are here not by accident. Uh, you've inspired them and intended them to be here. Uh, And you've put them here uh, in an ultimate way so that even through here, the Lord Jesus might be exalted and that we as people might be drawn towards him with love and faith. And so we pray uh, as we listen to your word and heed it, those two things would happen, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted in our hearts and minds and that we might be drawn to him. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen. How do you make sense uh, of a, a passage like this with all that's going on in it? Well, see if this helps in some ways. One thing to do is to, to keep thinking big picture. There's a recent film, uh, you might have seen it, called Free Guy. It's, it's really just a bit of silly fun. Uh, in some ways, it's about a computer game character. Already, it might sound like your sort of film completely. It's about a, a computer game character who sort of comes to life. He's got this catchphrase that goes, out, uh, goes on through the film. Uh, don't have a good day? Have a great day. Uh, that's repeated throughout the film. And in some ways, 
The film's asking, how does life become a great day? And part of the answer you're given in this film, because it's one of those quite deep films, is live your life just doing what you want. Be a free guy. Uh, that's how you get it. I mean, it is a fun film. It's quite enjoyable. It's not pretending to be deep, but that's, that's part of the answer it gives. Live life doing what you want. Be a free guy. Now, in some ways, this part of the Bible that we've been looking at in, in Genesis is what well, the whole book of Genesis is asking the same question. How does life become a great day if you were to read back in the beginning when God made the world? In chapter 2, creation sort of peaks, if you like, with there being a great day. But by chapter 3, as people turn from God and sin, that day is lost. And the question that's being asked really through the book and through the Bible is, is there a way is there a way to find that great day again? Are people going to be able to get back to that great day? And the answer from Genesis, as it begins to answer it, is, is not, we'll just live doing whatever you want. That's not the way back to the great day. Now, we've heard this, if you've been with us in, in this Genesis series, that, that God has a plan from the very beginning. He has a plan to rescue people, and he made a promise to this man called Abraham back in Genesis 12 that one day, one day through his family, the rescue would come. You keep that family in mind as you come back to passages like this, and it will help you because, look, if, if God's rescue, if you keep this in mind, if God's rescue is going to come through this family, well, then the thing you want to do is, is look after the family. Don't do anything that will jeopardize this family. Uh, the Olympics, back in the summer, if you remember that, the, the British men, I think, I think this is right, they, they won silver in the, the 4 by 100 meters relay. They were hoping for gold. They just missed out on it. That was pretty gutting. But actually, what was really gutting is what came out later. It seems that one of the athletes used some kind of drugs. And if that's true, he cheated. And then the really gutting thing about that is, is that his actions don't just mean that he loses his medal. No, the whole team do. He's, his actions scupper the whole team. Judah and his sons, in this reading we've got in Genesis, in a sense they are living in a way that could scupper the whole family. We, we don't care if, if this part of it really continues on. That's what's going on here. They could scupper the whole family. We'll, we'll just be free guys. And the big picture, you keep that big picture in mind, it'll help you understand why God seems to be so angry at the beginning of the chapter. But there's got to be more because we're given a real eyeful of this guy, Judah. We're given lots on him. You could think about it for a bit. Maybe you have this question at the back of your, of your mind. What do you make of him? What do you make of Judah? And as you think about that, here's, here's some things I think God will say to us in this passage. Here's the first one. It's really hard to admit the mess sin makes of you. See, if you look at this story, if you read it, read it again, you think, it's a real mess. This is a real mess in here. You're seeing it the right way. And the mess 
seem to begin in just a little way in Genesis. Do you remember all the way back at chapter 3, Adam and Eve, there was just that one piece of fruit on, on the tree where God says, look, you're free to eat from anything else, but not that tree. Don't disobey me on, on this. Don't, don't eat from that. And you, you think, well, it's just, it's just one little bit of fruit, isn't it? It's just disobeying God in, in one little way. Surely it's not that big a deal. Maybe you found that reading it yourself as you read back at Genesis 3. Was it, was it really that big a deal? Well, here we are in Genesis 38, and here's, here's part of the way it lands, that decision, with all the mess that's going on. You come back to verse 2 of chapter 38, and you read these words, uh, Judah met the daughter, and Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua, and he married her. And you think, well, that's all very nice. It's, it's a wedding. What's, what's the problem with that? Well, you, you might think so, but here's what else is going on. Uh, Judah's uncle Esau, you can read about him earlier in Genesis, he was really angry with his parents, and he wanted to deliberately annoy them, so he decided to marry someone that they really wouldn't like, and he chose someone from, from the people who lived around who didn't follow God, a Canaanite. Jacob went a different route, but everyone knew about Uncle Esau. So you get what Judah's doing here with this, this wedding that's going on, fed up with dad's favoritism. What do I care if I upset him? In fact, I think I really would like to upset him, so he copies Uncle Esau. And I think a writer even hints at the motives and the way he's put it, where it says in verse 2, if you're looking at it, where it says, he met, and then a bit later, he married. The words in the original are, are more like, he saw and he took. And they're the same words for when Eve saw and took the fruit on that tree. Interesting how a writer draws her attention to that. I'm going to do this, even though it's wrong. Judah is a rebel. But then there's his lies as well, verse 11. He makes out to Tamar. He's done in a kind of, kind of subtle way. He makes out Tamar will marry his next son. I'll just wait for a while, but he's, he's no intention of letting that happen. He's a liar. And then verses 12 to 16, there's his immorality, off at the sheep shearing with the guys, doesn't think twice about making use of this young woman. And if you're wondering as we read it, how did he not recognize her? Well, it might partly be the veil she's wearing, but I understand with the sheep shearing, it's a big festival time. There's probably lots of drinking going on as well. There, yeah, there's his immorality. He doesn't think twice about making use of this young woman. Then there's his cruelty in verse 24. So in the culture of the day, adultery could carry a death sentence, but burning to death? Burning a woman up? I mean, that's, that's extreme. And he's so quick with it, he's so quick out of his mouth. Bring her out, have her burned to death. But what's perhaps even more galling, if, if less immediately horrible than that one, is just his hypocrisy. Tamar's pregnant. I mean, she really is pregnant. And Judah's imply it is outrageous. She was engaged to my son, Sheila. She's broken her promise. I want her prosecuted to the full extent of the law and beyond. And as you read it, you think, really, Judah? 
you're going to be the one claiming the moral high ground here? Not so long since you sold your younger brother into slavery and with everything else that's going on, you're claiming the moral high ground? You read this and, and just understand this man, Judah. He's a successful man. He, he's wealthy. He's a wealthy shepherd. He employs people. He creates jobs for others. He's popular. He's got, he's got friends who are willing to do things for him. He's got a family. He's the free guy. He's able to do all sorts of things. But underneath it all, underneath everything that's going on here, sin's made him a complicated mess. I mean, you can see it, can't you? But he doesn't seem to. Friends, as you read this chapter, do you hear what God says to us in this story? It is really hard to admit, and at times even to see the mess sin makes of you. One of the things sin does to us, it's, it's like it blinds us. What does Judah need? Now, here's the second thing. He needs God to graciously humble him. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, you know the man that wrote Treasure Island? Maybe you've read that book. Um, I came across a story about him as a young boy in the past week or so. Uh, apparently the story is told that the one evening he was at home and he was he was looking out of the window at night, watching the, the men lighting, you know, the old gas street lamps. I say, you know, none of us are old enough to remember those, I don't think. But you, you maybe seen them in films, you know, those kind of things, the, the gas street lamps, and people would go around and light them. Well, uh, young Robert was watching those, uh, and his parents said, look, Robert, what are you looking at? And apparently he replied, and he said, look at that man. He's punching holes in the darkness. It's a great image, isn't it? You imagine looking out into that whole dark sky and then suddenly little pinpricks of light just start to appear. And then you see this man walking around and you can't quite see it and he's got almost like a, a magical wand and he, he pops it up and suddenly light peers out. There's a man punching holes in the darkness. If you've got that image in mind, because I think that's what hap is happening here in chapter 38. God punches a hole in Judah's darkness. Tamar's plan's awful, isn't it? You almost don't want to read it again. Tamar's plan's awful. And no one is saying it's good. No one is saying, oh, this was a, a really good thing. But in this story, she, this young woman, is the closest thing you get to a hero because at least she's trying to do something to help the family of promise, that big picture, keep going. The whole business from verses 13 to 24 is pretty miserable. And when she's found to be pregnant, Judah has her dragged out, and that's when she plays her trump card. See verse 25? See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And you understand that that seal, his seal in those days, that would have been used for all sorts of things. Think of that. That's equivalent to us today, having, having your credit card with your name on it, and somebody else has got it. Everybody would have known it was Judah's. Judah sees them, and he knows they're his. It was him. Verse 26, the very next verse, in some ways, that's like the punchline of the whole chapter. Just have a look at it with me. 
Judah's response is like this. He said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And you think, why is that so significant? Why is that the punchline? Well, it's because Judah's world just caved in at that moment. See, up to this point, you understand Judah, he'd have been thinking like this, like, my brother Joseph was hateful. He deserved it. My father's not worth respecting. My daughter-in-law's a pain. She's always bleating on about getting married. And now it turns out she was really immoral. She's going to get what she deserves. And then in a single moment, he's exposed for who he is. A hole is punched in the darkness of his life, the light begins to come in, and Judah sees himself. He's cruel. He's unjust. He is a liar, and he is rebellious. And for the first time, he's humble. You see that, don't you? You, you'll have noticed, haven't you? People who are really proud, people who are proud, they, they find it, one of the things they find really difficult to do is to admit when they've done something wrong. They, they often want to blame somebody else, make excuses, pass it away. Back in Genesis 3, when things begin for the first time to go wrong in the world, a, a man and a woman were there, and when, when things go wrong and God asked them what he'd done, Adam said, it was the woman it was the woman who you put here with me. She gave me some and I ate. It's her fault. She's to blame. Shifts the blame already. Here towards the end of the book of Genesis, we've got another man and a woman together again around something that has gone very wrong. But it's different this time, isn't it? Now at this point, Judah doesn't shift the blame. Standing beside someone who's who's done something that's pretty grim, he says, by God's standards, compared to her, I am much, much, much worse. And he means it. He says, look, when you look at, when you look at her and me, when when you look at the woman who's been accused of immorality and you look at me, the wealthy, successful businessman, she's the good one. At least she tried to honor God's plan. And I guess as you, you're reading this, you, you could look at this at this point and you think Judah's a broken man. This all happens in public. His reputation in tatters those of you in business in some way with public profiles, you can imagine this kind of thing happening. You, you could think about it, you put yourself in it, you think, that's it. Life's over at this point. You, you, you could look at this and think he's a broken man. But if you think that, friends, God would say to you, no, you are reading this the wrong way. Judah was broken a long time before this. Sin had made him a mess. The only things that were broken that day was the blindness to his own sin and his pride. God says to us, a church family here at Christ Church, as you read this, God says to us, this isn't the final breaking of someone. 
This is a gracious intervention to snatch someone back who is right at the edge. We'll sing towards the end of our service the, the hymn, Amazing Grace. Friends, that's what God wants you to see here. This is the day Judah's life begins to change by God's grace. We'll see next week how this change works out. But as we draw to a close, I'd like to try and just draw out two implications for us. One that's going to lean towards those of us who are older, older in years, older as Christians, and one that will lean more towards those of you who are younger, maybe younger in years, younger as Christians. At, at times, there's times, isn't it, when you, you read parts of the Bible, you, you read the Old Testament, all this stuff that happened so long ago, it feels like there's a, there's a huge gap, doesn't there, from, from their world to our world. And, and just as we, we draw this to a close, I'd like to try and just kind of close that gap. So you hear and feel God says these things to us as well. For those of us who are older, here's the thing I want to say. Beware spiritual blindness. Judah was well established. He got to that stage in his life, he, he's probably middle-aged. He's successful in his career in all sorts of ways. In many ways, I think he'd be like a lot of us who are here today. And yet he's blind to the mess sin is making of him. And he came within a hair's breath, get this, he came within a hair's breadth of destroying the life of a young woman. Is that not terrifying? And you know, if you've been watching the news at all, there is no huge gap from Judah's world to our world. A sinful man misusing legal powers to destroy the life of a young woman. Are we talking about Judah's day? Or are we talking about the news that's been on our screens for the past months? Many of you, like me, I think, will be, still be upset by the news about Sarah Everard, killed by a wicked man. And I imagine in the weeks before, Wayne Cousins went to work, saw friends, and if asked, would have said, yeah, I'm a good guy. I'm all right. I'm a good guy. And you can expand it out from that during the pandemic. One of the things they're calling the, the shadow pandemic. Uh, one weekend during the pandemic, the helplines for domestic abuse calls went up by 65%. There's no gap from Judah's day to our day. Friends, it is an uncomfortable thing, isn't it? It is an uncomfortable thing when God punches holes in your darkness. But you think, what's the alternative? Would you rather he let you go? Would you rather he let you go and allow you to plow on to your own disaster and the disasters of others around you? Beware spiritual blindness. Don't nourish it. Don't encourage it. Ignoring resentment towards parents a habit of lying just to make life easier in the short term, hypocrisy about your own moral standards, being harsh 
to the little ones who live in your own homes, Judah was pulled back just in time. Dear friends, if you've not done it for some time, be humble and ask God to punch holes in your own darkness. Yeah, amen indeed. And look, for those of you who are younger, here's the thing to think about and maybe to be encouraged by from this passage. Look, live for God's promised Savior. If there's lessons from Tamar, and I imagine there's many, but it will at least include this. She may not have known much about God's plans, but she seemed to know God had promised a Savior, and so she, she lived her life for that, even in risky ways. And even when those older than her, part of this family of God, were not a good example to her, those of you who are younger, Christians at a young age, it's a wonderful thing to come and know the Lord Jesus. But you may find yourselves among older Christians who are not living the way we should. It is bad when we let you down like that. But even when we do, ask God. Ask God to, to help you keep living for that promised Savior, that you build your life around Him. As I read the passage uh, this week, I, I thought about its message. It, it's so messy and dark, but you begin to read what's going on here. You, you begin to see a, a light is shone on someone's sin, but not to destroy them, but to save them and to draw them towards God's saving plan. You begin to think about that, a light that shines in the darkness, that draws you towards a gracious Savior. You, you think on that and you realize, who it is that speaks to you out of this mess? The one who speaks through all the pages of the Bible. The one who even in the Old Testament is anticipated, but the, the force of his presence comes through in all sorts of ways. The light of the world, God's promised Savior, he was coming for Judah. And he comes for you, even here this morning, shining light on your darkness, not to destroy you, but to draw you to himself. You notice in verse 29, it's a little thing. As you read through uh, the chapter like that, it maybe doesn't stand out in, in many ways, but one of the children born to Tamar in this whole messy situation is called Perez. And he had a great-great-grandson called David who became king. And one of his descendants was Joseph, married to Mary, the mother of Jesus, the light of the world who cast a light on sin, and yet God's promised rescuer. Friends, it's the Lord Jesus who meets you in Genesis 38. He's the one who confronts us. And if you'll humble yourself like Judah, you'll find your life. Your life is led always towards him. Each week when we've done this, we've at times said, maybe good to have a question to think about. Maybe to talk about parents with children, children with parents with friends, amongst family. Here's a little one. You can scribble it down and ponder it. How easy do you find admitting when you've sinned and need some help to change? 
that'd be a good question to get out and talk about with one another. It might even lead to some things, being able to say, do you know what, I think I've really struggled with this. Uh, would you pray with me that God helps me turn from it? And uh, that'd be a good thing to talk about maybe this week. We're going to go on to our uh, communion service to share the Lord's Supper, but uh, before we do, let's just have a moment for our own quiet uh, prayer and reflection to what God has said to us. And then Michael will lead us on after that.